Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 4. We're going to begin reading verse number 14 in a moment, uh, Luke chapter 4. And um, just turn my tablet off here. Get it back on. There we go. There are, um, there are some passages that you get to study during the week, and you, you realize midway through the week that there is no way that you can bless the people with the way that you've been blessed in studying the passage. And, and this, this would be one of those passages that are just so much, it's such a rich passage. And uh, the temptation is to either throw everything in one sermon or take, you know, three sermons to go through a passage, trying to avoid both of them. But um, God said that, um, or uh, not God, let me back up. Let me start, restart. Someone said that God only had one son and he made him a preacher. Uh, the, the world has not produced a greater preacher than our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he came to preach salvation, the gospel, good news, right? Um, the gospel brings saving faith to people and gives them hope in, in all their troubles and helps them see the glory of the Son of God. I, I can't think of anything better than to hear our Savior preach and preach about himself. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? And this is what he did in the synagogue on that Sabbath. So if you will stand with me, we will begin reading Luke chapter number 4 and beginning in verse number 14. And, all right, hold on. There we go. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll, I'll, I'll stop, I'll mention this in the sermon, but I just want to mention, because he stood up to read, that means that he was officially invited by someone to read a scripture and preach on it, teach on it. So just to let you know. And uh, the, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Lord, we thank you for the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage it, uh, Father, is a beautiful picture of what occurs to every one of us in our salvation. I pray that the Holy Spirit will impress upon us the, 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 the important truth of what you have done in our lives because Christ saved us. I pray that this will drive us to worship Jesus Christ and to worship the Father. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and, and compel us to go out and preach the same gospel as we leave here today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. 
Now, now we don't know how long Jesus preached in Galilee before he traveled back to Nazareth, but it could have been a few months, uh, but it's important that Luke notes this. He says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And that was the secret to his success. Was, was he the Son of God? Answer is absolutely yes. Could he, as Son of God, preach in his own power? And the answer is yes, he could have, but he didn't. The Bible says Luke is, is very certain to show us over and over that Jesus' ministry was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to be honest with you, that's the secret to any ministry that's effective, isn't it? The power of the Holy Spirit. No doubt about it. Uh, I spent a lot of time this week asking for the Holy Spirit to bless this service, to bless the preaching of the Word, to bless all the different ministry functions that we have going on. Also, to bless the ministry that parents have to their children. I mean, it's all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this, here's, here's the amazing thing to me. I want you to think about this. This power of the Holy Spirit is accessible to anyone who comes to faith in God. G- Jeremy Camp has a song called Same Power, right? It lives within us. However, I, I do want to say this. Jesus possessed it in a unique way and to the fullest measure, in a way that we will not. Uh, you don't walk around healing people upon command. Jesus did, right? As the divine Son of God, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was also baptized by the Holy Spirit who descended upon him um, like a dove, right? He went out to face the devil, and the Bible says that he did it full of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit remained upon him through, throughout his public ministry. Jesus didn't operate independently, serving by his own strength, but dependently relying upon the Spirit's work. And it makes me ask this question, how many times do we subconsciously depend upon our own power to do stuff? How many times do we not bathe things in prayer? The same divine spiritual power that accomplished his incarnation enabled him to defeat the devil and also empowered his ministry in word, word or deed. That's the same spirit. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Godhead. In doing a, sa- a saving work, the Son, the whole time He's working, was vitally connected to the Father and vitally connected to the Holy Spirit within the triune being of God. How that works, I don't know. But He was connected, right? It's astounding if you really sit down to think about it. This mystery is also one of the main secrets of effective gospel ministry. If Jesus depended upon the Spirit, how much more should we rely upon His gracious influence, right? We are so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice, not only was He dependent upon the Holy Spirit, there's something else about His ministry, and we see that in verse number 15. Look at verse number 15. It says that He taught in their synagogues. He taught in their synagogues. And if anyone has the right to think that he didn't know, need to go to worship. It was Jesus, right? Why, why would he have to go to worship? He's, he's the son of God. Can you imagine, sit back with me for just a minute. 
Now, these synagogues, I don't know how much you know about the synagogue, and I'm going to run a little bit of a rabbit trail scenario here, but uh, there was, you only had to have a certain number of Jewish males in a village to have a synagogue. I, I think it was 10. It could have been 12. I can't remember how many it was. Uh, that's not important, but not very many. But these little backwater Jewish towns in Palestine, can you imagine with me how many times Jesus had to listen to below average teaching? <laughs> I mean, he, he had perfect understanding as the Son of God. And he had to listen to us, people like us, teach. How easy would it have been to say, I heard that dude last week. I don't want to go hear him again. He's wrong, right? But he didn't need, he didn't need to go to the synagogue. And yet, and, and think about this, he could commune with the Father somewhere off uh, better by himself. He, he could easily say that, right? Yet throughout his life, <coughs> Jesus maintained a regular pattern of public worship. The Bible says that this was his custom. We learn that in verse number 16. So Jesus sang through the Psalms. He listened to God's word. He said his prayers. And if going to worship was important for him, then obviously it needs to be a priority for us as well, doesn't it? Because we need it. We need it. Weekly worship attendance is the foundation for any life that glorifies Christ. And that's why the Bible says, do not neglect to meet together in Hebrews chapter number 10. Finally, I want you to notice the third thing about these verses. And that is that uh, he was being glorified by, by all. So think with me for just a moment. Spirit-empowered teaching through Jesus Christ was awakening people's hearts and minds. And what was the result? They glorified the Son. And that is, that is a hallmark of Spirit-empowered preaching and teaching today. Preaching and teaching today has the goal. Christian worship, Christian teaching has as its goal to glorify the person of Jesus Christ. And if anyone or anything else is being glorified, then it's wrong. Because we come here to glorify God. And so, here he is. He stands up to give his first sermon in Nazareth as a guest in the synagogue. What was the content? What was the content of that sermon? Well, we read it. And what we're about to read, by the way, is the oldest... I found this fascinating. Uh, I've studied this many times, but I, I studied it again. This is the oldest account of a synagogue service that we possess. Look at, look at the end of verse number 16. It says, And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now verse number 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, why did I read those? We don't actually know what synagogue services look like during the time of Christ, but we do know what they look like about um, 150, 200 years later. Uh, we don't have any accounts other than this one at the time of Christ, but 200 years later, and I wouldn't imagine they would change a whole lot, uh, there, was, there, were three, there was a three-year 
fixed reading schedule of the law. And the law remembers from Genesis to Deuteronomy, right? They had, a, they had it on a three-year schedule. They had a reading from the prophets. They had a sermon on Scripture. And they had a blessing and they had prayers. And these were scattered all throughout the service. Same basic format every Sabbath. They didn't have pastors. Uh, but when the, the different people would teach. But when a notable teacher came was visiting, that person would be invited to teach. Most likely that's the case here in Nazareth. Jesus was already well, becoming well-known in Galilee. They had heard of him. He's in their presence, and so they ask him to teach. Now we think, just from the way it's written, that he probably asked for the Isaiah scroll. And then it says that he turned to that. Now the scroll, you roll them, you know. And so he rolled... What's fascinating, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit more than what I was planning to, but this is really fascinating. Have you ever seen Hebrew? Not modern Hebrew, with the vowel pointings. The, the Hebrew that Jesus read, every line had no spacing between the words. And it was line after line after line, no spacing, and he's able to, no verse markers, nothing. It was just straight text. And he found the spot that he was looking for, and he read standing up, and that was the custom. A rabbi would read standing up. Then I, I noted that he hands the scroll back to the attendant who would put it away in a special place that they kept all the scrolls, and then he sat down to teach. And the rabbis always sat down to teach, but they sat on a chair that was on a raised platform, and this was to signify spiritual authority, and Jesus followed that pattern. And so there he is, sitting there teaching. Now, when he f finished reading the scripture, the sermon began, look at verse number 21 with me. And he said, he, Luke gives us a one-sentence summary. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I was laughing about this this morning. Wouldn't you just love to have a one-sentence summary of my sermons? <laughs> Don't answer. In other words, Jesus announced that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in verse number 61. The prophecy was of the, the Messiah's fulfillment of the ultimate jubilee. Let us read Luke's uh, loose quotation of Isaiah 61 together in verse number 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I used the term right before I read that. I said he's proclaiming the ultimate jubilee. What is that? What is the jubilee? Well, if you look at Leviticus 25, you can turn there if you want. Uh, Leviticus 25, beginning in verse number 8, Leviticus 25 talks about jubilee. And, and it's a special 50th year celebration. You had 49 years, and then on the 50th year, it was a whole year of celebration. And verse number 10 says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. Does that sound familiar? Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Literally, uh, 
Isaiah 61 is proclaiming the ultimate jubilee, the 50th year jubilee. Well, this is what Isaiah meant when he said the year of the Lord's favor. The, the year, the jubilee year, the 50th year, was a year of amnesty. It was, it was a, a year when slaves were set free from the servitude. It was a year of redemption when debtors were released from their financial obligations. It was a year of restoration when lost property was returned to its rightful owners. And Jubilee became known as a prefigurement of, of redemption. Can't you see how that would happen? It, it, they understood that it was pointing to redemption. So when Isaiah prophesied, what he prophesied was the Jubilee to end all Jubilees. When the people of Nazareth heard it, they should have known that he was speaking about that great day of salvation. Shouldn't they? they? They should have recognized it as a prophecy about the Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? It means anointed one. The anointed one was the Messiah. Or to, the Greek term for that is what? Christ. Okay. Therefore, when godly people heard Isaiah's prophecy, it gave them hope that one day God would come and save his people. That's the hope. When they read Isaiah 61, Jewish, godly Jewish people hoped that one day the Messiah, Greek, the Christ, would come and save his people. And could you imagine being in that synagogue that day when Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll and then rolled it up and sat down and looked at them and said, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what are the elements of this proclamation? Well, the first element is, is Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. There's that Messiah terminology, to proclaim good news. Messiah means anointed one. Jesus proclaimed that He is the Christ. This is perhaps... Perhaps this was the first time Jesus declared that he was Israel's Messiah. He did this implicitly by taking Isaiah's words and claiming them as his own. This was a clear way of claiming to be the Christ. And so Jesus was saying that he was the anointed one, the Messiah. And what had he come to do? What did he come to do as Messiah? He promised that he would... Uh, I'm, uh, I hate when I get tongue-tied. Isaiah promised that the Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. And in proclaiming good news to the poor, he would also proclaim liberty to captives, recovering the sight of the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. And so when the, the people heard Jesus say this, you know what they assumed? They assumed it was some sort of political manifesto. Because why? They were just like everybody else. They expected an earthly salvation that would bring physical deliverance. Isn't that what we do around here every four years? Oh, please, President so-and-so, save me. Please, please, please. Isn't that what Americans do? They want political salvation. Some of them wanted 
to give the poor a higher standard of living. They wanted a social revolution. Some of them wanted to heal the sick, a medical revolution. And still others wanted him to overthrow the Romans, a political revolution. And guess what? Jesus had the power to do all of those things, didn't he? In fact, isn't that what Satan tempted him to do? We learned that from last week. That's what Satan tempted him to do. It was a real temptation for him. But listen, that was not what he was called to do. He was called to do something else. And people who were looking only for an earthly kingdom were frustrated when Jesus failed to bring it. And there are people who come to Jesus Christ today who they come to Jesus expecting him to save their marriage, to give them a good job, to reform their kids, to help them with whatever earthly problem they think they have And they're sorely disappointed when they find out that coming to Christ or claiming Christ, let me put it that way, claiming Christ brings more problems than it does solutions. And so they become disappointed in that Christ, proving that they never did come to Christ spiritually anyway. The first and foremost, Jesus came to bring spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. The the key word in those verses is the word proclaim, which occurs three times. Jesus was sent to proclaim news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the Lord's favor. Now, who was he preaching to? He was preaching to four kinds of people. And we see this here. He was preaching to the poor, wasn't he? Now, people often wonder this statement, does it refer to people in, in, who are poor in financial terms? Of course it does. But it actually goes deeper. When Jesus spoke about the poor, he was referring to the common people of the land, the, the vast majority of which lived in humble poverty. Jesus didn't come to raise their standard of living, although God often makes the, pro, uh, the righteous prosper. Jesus came to give the poor something richer. The good news that by trusting in him, they could receive forgiveness for their sins. They could receive the guarantee of eternal life and the treasures of heaven. Isn't that so much better news? Why did Jesus then say this gospel for the poor? Wasn't it also for the rich? Well, of course it was. The gospel's for anyone who's willing to receive it. In fact, in this very sermon, we'll see next week, uh, Jesus mentions two people who were saved by grace. One was poor, the widow of Zarephath, and one was rich, named the Syrian. Both of them recognize their true, now listen, this is the important part, spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty and turn to God. And in Matthew, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, They are recognizing their spiritual poverty. In Luke, Luke, most of the time, when he refers to poor, there's a double meaning there. And so that's why when Luke repeats Jesus' words, he only says, blessed are the poor, because he's developed a theme throughout the book 
but shows that the poor, the poverty-stricken are those who are poverty, uh, in poverty spiritually. But Jesus said that he had good news for the poor so they would know the grace of God. And usually, <coughs> the poor get overlooked. But Jesus said that the gospel came for them as much as it did for anyone else. There's a second group of people. And that is the captives. The captives. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this, this echoes the message of Jubilee from Leviticus 25.10, where, where the, they're told to proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. The word translated captives here, it, it means prisoner of war. It means somebody who was, who was captured and taken to a foreign land. And, and spiritually, it means somebody who is in spiritual bondage. And so Jesus came to preach liberty to the captives, those who are in spiritual bondage. And liberty is a key word. What does liberty mean? You know, we think of Paul Revere, give me liberty or give me death. But, but what does liberty mean in the New Testament? What does that word mean? It actually means a release from bondage. In scriptures, this is fascinating. In scriptures, the word that's liberty in this text oftentimes is translated forgiveness. Forgiveness. Luke especially likes this pitch, picture. I'll give you three in Luke, but there's a ton of them in Acts. He says this, Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This word forgiven, that's the verbal form of the word liberty. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. In Luke 24, remember the road to Emmaus after, after uh, his resurrection? And he says, and that repentance for the Forgiveness or liberty from sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. I, did get, I, I have a couple from Acts in here. I lied to you. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, from your sins. Liberty. Liberty from the bondage of sin. And in Acts 13, 38, Let it be known to you, brothers, that throughout, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you a proclamation that you can have liberty from the bondage of sin doesn't that sound wonderful bond liberty from the bondage of sin and so let's think about what jesus just did he was preaching the most liberating emancipating release of all Ultimately, that release is fulfilled when we get to heaven. And believe me, I cannot wait to get to heaven to be released from all temptation to sin. Can you? That would be, be one of the greatest liberties of all. Freedom from the guilt through the forgiveness of sin. There is no greater captivity than bondage to sin. Think about what sin does to us. It imprisons the mind, it enslaves the heart, and it incarcerates the soul until Jesus sets it free. And if that is what sin does, then what Jesus did on the cross is the world's greatest deliverance. 
By dying for our sins, Jesus paid the debt that we owed to God and thereby freed us from our captivity to sin and to guilt. Charles, I was thinking about this this week. Charles Wesley put it in one of his most famous hymns, didn't he? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood... His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for you and for me. Isn't that wonderful? This is the gospel according to Jesus. There's another group he spoke to. That was the blind. Recovering of sight to the blind. People ask whether this refers to uh, uh, physical or spiritual blindness. Yes, it does. Later in the gospel, Luke will give an account of Jesus restoring sight to a blind man in Luke chapter 18. We'll get there sometime. Hey, don't, don't, don't estimate, and no, don't start a pool. When is Pastor going to get to Luke 18, okay? But this is a sign of the age to come, when every child of God will have perfect vision. Jesus has promised that every believer will see Jesus in all his glory. That is why he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Then purify your heart. Rid yourself of corrupt thoughts. Rid yourself of corrupt motives. Rid yourself of all the things that pollute the soul. Now I know what you're saying. I can't do that. You're right. You're right. But Jesus commands us to anyway. And he gives us the power to do it, doesn't he? he doesn't, we don't become perfect the side of heaven. But the more that we focus on Jesus and all his glory, the more we see him. People ask, you know, you know well, it just seems so hard. It is. But that's why you have the, the power of the Holy Spirit within you. If Jesus came to restore only physical sight, that's somewhat of a limited blessing, isn't it? It would be great for blind people, but even for them, it would fail to address their deepest need. Jesus, Jesus came <coughs> to give sight for the blind. He came to help us see our sin. He came to help us see our need of a Savior so that we would look to Him for grace. It's the only source that we have. Even when He gave people physical sight, as he sometimes did, it was to let them know that he had the power also to help them see salvation. Like, the he like healing of physical blindness, the recovery of spiritual sight is a prominent uh, theme or motif in Luke's gospel. For example, remember Luke 2.30 where he says, For my eyes have seen your what? Your salvation. See, that's the opening of your spiritual eyes. And it's fascinating in Luke 24, I mentioned that already, the, the stranger on the road to Emmaus, it says uh, in Luke 24, 16, that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They couldn't see Jesus who, for who he was, but guess what? In just a few verses later, in verse number 31, it says, and their eyes, it doesn't say they opened their eyes. The Bible says their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. You see, it is God who opens the spiritual eyes. It is God who helps us to see him. 
And we see Him through His Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the motif of, of blindness uh, and, and spiritual sight runs to a triumphant conclusion in the book of Acts. And remember, Luke wrote, also wrote Acts, right? Um, and so Paul, when he announces his divine mission to the Gentiles towards the end of the book of Acts, says this. Here's his mission. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Talking about Jesus Christ. He's, he's repeating Jesus' message. Jesus opens the eyes. Jesus sets them free. Jesus um, uh, releases them from the power of sin. And so they turn from darkness to light. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus does all this. And there's one more group. And that is the oppressed. The oppressed. To set a liberty those who are oppressed, he offered the oppressed the same thing he offered the captives. Liberty. Freedom released. The oppressed are people who are crushed in spirit, shattered by the hard experiences of life. So when Jesus spoke about oppression, he was speaking to anyone dominated by the powerful forces of evil in this world. We, we just watched the Dawsons, and the, the, they're, they're, they're captivated. They're, they're being held on by the dominating forces of the demons through the shamans, the witch doctors, right? Oppressed people are crushed in spirit. They're shattered by the hard experiences of life. When Jesus spoke about oppression, he was talking about anyone who was dominated by the forces of evil, people who were put to extreme hardship and persecution. And also describes, and here's the important part, here's the parallel, anyone who was under spiritual oppression. Uh, and there was a physical example of that in Jesus' ministry. Every time he released somebody from the power of demons, demon-possessed people. I got some good news for you. One day, all oppression will cease. But in the meantime, God has grace for the people who have been wounded by wickedness. We have comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ himself endured oppression on his way to the cross, and by his Spirit, he speaks hope to our wounded hearts. Now, what do people need most? Do they need a little financial help? Do, do, they, do what they need most is a little recovery for their addiction? No. What people need most is the good news of salvation in Christ. What do poor people need? Maybe they need more money, and if they do, we need to provide for basic needs, right? But the main thing poor people need is the gospel. Because it offers them all the treasures of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. What do prisoners need? Well, they want, may want to get out of prison, but what they need most is freedom from sin and its guilt. And that only comes through Christ and his cross. 
What do people with disabilities need? Often they need practical assistance, don't they? Which we are called to help provide. But above all, they need the hope that their sins are forgiven. Right? And then one day Jesus will raise their bodies from the dead and they'll have a resurrection body. What do people who are oppressed need? Well, they need comfort and protection for sure, which we should offer. But they also need the safety and security of eternal life. Bottom line is, this is what we all need. The gospel according to Jesus in its saving and liberating power. And if we want to see people's lives transformed, including our own, we need to give people the gospel. The renewal of the church and the reformation of society come through the preaching of the cross in the empty tomb. Do you believe the gospel? If so, it has lifted you from poverty of your soul, released you from captivity to sin, it's helped you to see your spiritual blindness, and now God is calling you to help others who have the same desperate needs. According to Jesus, what they need is the gospel. And if we love Jesus and listen to him, we will give it to them. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel. I think all of us would admit that we do not preach the gospel often enough and well enough. Lord, this is the greatest news there ever was. You're the greatest savior there ever was offering the greatest salvation there ever has been and ever will be and so lord i pray that you will embolden us give us compassion give us a love for god to such a degree that we will go out and proclaim that same gospel to prisoners to blind people to captives oppressed people lord i pray in all these things, Christ's name will be glorified and magnified. Amen.